Brothers and sisters, I'll invite you, having prayed now, to turn to the Word of God. You can take out your pew Bibles. We're going to be turning this morning to Romans chapter 5. We'll be catching the very tail end of chapter 5, starting in verse 20. And we'll be working our way through chapter 6, verse 14. So that's Romans chapter 5, verse 20 is where we'll start. And I've chosen this passage this morning for a fairly simple reason. And that reason is this. As a Christian holy day or holiday, Easter deserves far more credit than a single Sunday. The event of Christ's resurrection is far too glorious, far too grand, far too all-encompassing for us to only give it 24 hours of commemoration. And this is why, of course, throughout the church's history, it's commonly been celebrated as a season. Yet sadly, this is uh, not the case often in evangelical churches today. It really can become just one Sunday. We just celebrate Easter. And so, and that's fine. But I would say we, we spend a lot of time celebrating Christmas. Christmas gets a lot of attention in the Christian church. And even in our, in our world, in our culture, uh, we spend weeks of anticipation. That technically should be Advent, of course. But the whole thing kind of just gets rolled into one giant Christmas pie. And we celebrate that for weeks. And so I would say if we're going to celebrate Christmas for a few weeks, we should celebrate Easter, no less, for some time. And so... Christmas, of course, is important. Christmas is a crucial detail of the gospel. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human flesh and coming into our world. That's important, of course. Make no doubt about it. But what's, you might say, even more important is what he does. Who he, who he is and what he does go together. And Easter is the commemoration not only of his coming, but of his victory over sin and over death and over the grave. And this is, this is important. And this can be seen that Easter is this important by looking to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, we see a famous verse from the Apostle Paul who says this, If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. So what Paul is doing here is hanging the full weight of the Gospel on this fact, the resurrection. And so I would say, I would offer that Easter, therefore, is theologically even more important than Christmas. It is the basis of our confession and of our hope. And so because of this, I want to continue probing its depths and exploring it in our time together this morning. In Pastor Mark's sermon last week, he helpfully pointed out that there that one way to understand the resurrection, one helpful way of understanding it, would be by turning to the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, particularly question and answer 45. And if it wasn't already present, I hope it's clear that Mark and I really genuinely care about the Heidelberg Catechism. We want this to be something our church cherishes and loves and continues to use and to benefit from. It's truly a jewel of Reformational Protestant insight. And so we do well to turn to it and to understand it. And so to refresh your memories, we'll read. You don't have to read out loud. I will simply read for us. Uh, from question and answer 45. So it says, How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? That's a common theme in this part of the catechism. How does each part of the gospel benefit us? 
all the, all the different aspects of Christ's incarnation, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all of these benefit us in one way or another. So the resurrection benefits us as such. First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us by His death. Second, by His power, we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. And so as Mark pointed out, this answer gives us a helpful framework for understanding the significance of the resurrection. We could say it starts with what the resurrection has done for us in the past. We can then look at what the resurrection is doing for us even in the present. That's the second part of this. And then third, what the resurrection will do for us in the future. And Mark did a really good job of explaining all three of these components last week. This week, I just want to enter into that second one, the new life of the resurrection, how it benefits us in the present. And so, as we turn to the scriptures this morning, we will find how this happens. We will see how the resurrection benefits us in the here and now. It's easy for us to think of, well, Christ was raised in the past, and we will therefore be raised in the future. Paul wants us to see, in this portion of his letter to the Romans, how it benefits us right here, right now, and why this is important. So with that in mind, let's pray for the Lord to bless our reading this morning. Father, we turn to your word now, looking for life looking for Christ. Lord, we know that it's easy to read the Scripture and not have our eyes attuned to Him. It's easy to look for advice. It's easy to look for little pieces and nuggets of wisdom. But Lord, this morning we turn looking for Jesus. Help us to see Him. Do this by Your Spirit that we may grow in our love of Him of our faith in Him, and of our obedience to Him. We pray this in His name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through 6, 14. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Great grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Of the many lessons that Easter presents us with, and there are many, I think the primary lesson is the one that can be summed up with a simple four-letter word, hope. Hope. This, in fact, is what the season is all about. Death does not get the final word. As Pastor Mark made clear last week, death presents us with a looming question mark that Christ's resurrection is the grand exclamation point to, the grand answer of God to the dark obstacle that we all face, the grave. But by digging deeper, we can see that our hope is not only found in the answer to that looming future question, the problem of death, which of course is the future resurrection, that's the answer to that, but our hope also extends and reaches into this present life. It reaches to us now, to this age, the age prior to the age yet to come. And this, I believe, is what Paul is striving at to get in to get at in this message, in this passage that he's writing. And it's why our catechism points us in this direction as well. To put it simply, Paul is showing us that eternal life is not something that we will experience then, someday, but it's also something that we experience now, today, albeit imperfectly. Walking in new life life is not something then that we must wait for. It's something that we are We are given grace and enter into by God's grace now. It's entirely possible. This is the big hope. It's entirely possible for people like us, sinful people, to be changed and to be transformed, to be made new from the very core of their being. And while this may, at first blush, sound like a familiar truth, not all that surprising or groundbreaking, you might be thinking to yourself, well, duh, Zach, I know that Jesus gives us new life. I think it's worth pointing out for this reason, at least. Sin, if you haven't noticed yet, is very, very hard to fight. It can be demoralizing at times. It's very, very hard to fight, I should say, successfully. To fight it with any measure of progress. Have you ever noticed that? Have you noticed sin in your life like that that is so hard to kill? In my own experience, and I'm sure in the experience of many of you as well, the ongoing battle against sin does at times feel extremely demoralizing, even sometimes to the point of spiritual depression. 
How can I fight this? It can get to the point then, over, over time, where it feels like there's no point at all. Why don't I just give up? Why don't I just give in? It can make, make you wonder to yourself, am I going to be the most sinful saint in heaven, or am I going to be the most sinless saint in hell? And so the questions that will run through our minds, we will wonder, am I going to be saved? Is this even worth the effort? Is this worth the time? Sin seems impossible to fight. If you know this this spiritual depression, if you have felt this before, then friend, this passage is for you. It's God's balm to your hurting soul. Paul declares, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Think about those words. Newness of life. Isn't that what we're wanting? So the good news of the gospel is not just that you are forgiven in Christ. It's also that in him you are given this. This newness of life, which is a life marked by Christ's resurrection power, which enables you to wage war on your sin. Here's the kicker with success. It can be done because the resurrection power of Christ is in you. And so in order for us to fully benefit from this passage, to really glean this hope, to be encouraged in our fight against sin, We'll want to enter in, of course, to the apostles' logic. And to do this, we'll need to go back into the end of chapter 5. And so, if we, if we didn't catch these last few verses of chapter 5's argument, which itself is a rather complex and important argument, which we won't get all the way into in our time this morning, but we'll see at the end, in verse 20, how Paul says, "...the law came in to increase the trespass." But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what's he getting at here? Well, the short answer is this. The law, by which I take Paul to mean the law of Moses, particularly as it's sort of enshrined in the Ten Commandments, that law revealed just how gracious God was to his people. And it did this by exposing their sin. So it showed the quality of their sin and the quantity of their sin. It showed how sinful they were and how bad their sin was. And by exposing this, God's grace was revealed in all of its glory. They saw just how gracious God was. And so His grace abounded all the more. Sin increased, grace abounded. In the Old Testament, there was a long period of time, of course, between the first man, whose name was Adam, and a man who came long after him, whose name was Moses, the one through whom the law was given. And one of the functions of this law, again, was was to expose and reveal our sin. This is still one of the primary functions of God's law. It's why we confess our sins, because it exposes us within. But they also needed to know, the people needed to know that God was gracious and his law did this. Again, it showed them just how bad it was. Before, but in between, Moses and and Adam who came before him, people were dying. And that's a simple point. It's not all that hard to understand. 
But it proves that there was sin. There was always sin. People knew right from wrong in a general sense, and therefore they were accountable, and sin leads to death. But God was up to something. God was up to something through Moses. They knew right from wrong. It had been written on their hearts. But the objective law of God removed all their attempts to justify themselves. All attempts to excuse their sin. But again, it highlights, in so doing, God's glorious grace for sinners. And this is what Paul means again when he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, God's grace outpaced or outweighed. If you think of sin's weight, you could think of grace weighing more. And this is revealed in both God's common grace He gives grace to sinners, and even when they do not repent, He still brings things like rain. He gives them food and shelter and the blessings of this life. But His grace, of course, shines most brightly in His particular grace, His saving grace, through which we come to know Him and be restored to Him. And so Paul is highlighting God's law, and he's highlighting how God is gracious through this. But this leads to a very big question for Paul. It leads to him having to anticipate maybe an objection that he would have been hearing. So he says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, one might object to Paul at this point and say, Well then, Paul. If God's grace outweighs and outpaces humanity's constantly increasing amount of sin, and it thus highlights God's grace, you know, why don't we just keep on sinning and keep on then highlighting God's grace? It's actually very likely that this was an objection that Paul was used to receiving. He would have been familiar uh, with the teachings of the Pharisees and the scribes, And the Sadducees and even the Judaizers who were sort of a semi-Jewish, semi-Christian group who sort of taught a hybrid, but they preached that you must become a Jew in order to become a Christian. So Paul is sort of aware of these objections. And he knows that to their ears, his message probably sounded something like this. Since you're saved by grace through faith and not by your works, and because God's righteousness and graciousness is given to you, your sin only serves to magnify God's glory. And so therefore, they would think that Paul is saying, just keep going and sinning. Uh, Just receive all of God's grace and keep doing, therefore, whatever you want. And so what we see here in in Romans chapter 6, in the beginning of this chapter, is two things. First, we see that Paul is sympathetic to the seriousness of their charge. He recognizes that this is a legitimate question. And if this is If his gospel is true, he's going to have to explain how his gospel doesn't give people a license to sin. So he gets that. But secondly, then, we see him then give this explanation. He enters into showing how his gospel does not lead to licentious living, to living however you choose, however you please. He grabs the bull by the horn, so to speak, and he uses this as an opportunity to expand on his gospel. Because up to this point in Romans, you may wrongly interpret, I think, that, oh, God saves me by grace through faith, not by my own works. 
So therefore, what I do doesn't matter. Paul now is wanting to use this as an opportunity to hammer home this point. That no, grace does not give you permission to sin. But how he gives this explanation is pretty jarring. It's not exactly what we might expect. First of all, again, he doesn't dismiss this objection. He he seriously recognizes that this is is a, a problem if people start to take it this way. And so he is implicitly agreeing that any doctrine that justifies sin is absolutely wicked and is to be avoided. But the seriousness can also be seen in his emphatic response here to it. These three words in English, two in Greek, by no means, which is in Greek, meganoito. This phrase might be actually better translated. This is maybe a little bit of a weak English translation. It's hard to really bring this phrase into English. Other translations give us variations like, God forbid, with an exclamation point, or yeah, or, or uh, no, simply. There's all sorts of different uh, translations on this point. I, I think that maybe the best way to translate it would be however you might respond to something really outrageous and crazy. If somebody were to ask you on the street, for example, uh, if they could light your hair on fire, how would you respond? Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? No way. You may absolutely not do that. Or what if a waiter at a restaurant was to say something like, hey, would you mind if I coughed on your food before I served it to you? You would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That, that is not acceptable. And that's sort of how Paul is getting at this, this question. Can I just keep on sinning so that grace abounds? What in the world? Paul is saying no. And that, that shows us the sort of vehemence, the seriousness of his response should teach us something about how we should be militantly opposed to sin in our lives. But there's another reason his answer is so interesting. And it comes in his response to the question, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? You might think, well, no, is what he's going to say. No way. Don't you get that Jesus died for you? And so therefore you should live for him. This is not exactly a wrong answer, but it's not his answer. It's not the answer that he gives. And so we want to dig deeper. He gives us this answer, picking up in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but we should start by recognizing that Paul's general point here is that to continue on on sinning is so unthinkable because those who trust in Christ have a fundamentally new identity. They're new people, new creations, new beings. And his point here actually stretches back to the previous chapter where we saw and we see him give an extended uh, dialogue about and a teaching about comparing Adam and Christ. And he tells us there that we can see the world and all people as falling into one of two categories. You are either in Adam, you are in him who is the head of humanity, he is the first sinner and through which all of sin and death came into the world. 
or you are in Christ. And He is your representative. He is your head. These are the two ways of this world. And so Paul is saying here, you have a new identity. You are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. You've been transferred, so to speak, from the realm of sin and death to the kingdom of righteousness and life. And interestingly, Paul tells us that this happens through baptism. Through baptism. Which is the means by which we might say that God rips us out of being in Adam and transforms us and places us to being in Christ. Such that we were considered dead to sin and now we are alive to God in Him. So a fundamental change has happened. And here's how Reformed theologian Peter Lightheart puts it. Explaining this passage, he says, Each Adam inaugurates a kingdom. The first Adam brought the reign of sin that leads to death. Christ brings the reign of those who receive grace. Those alternative kingdoms are corporate realities, social worlds, competing patterns of human life. Baptism extracts the baptized from the former and implants him in the latter. Fundamentally, then, what Paul is getting at is that all those who are in Christ have undergone this grand, unalterable, radical, transferal process, an immigration of sorts from one world to the next. And so as citizens, then, of this, you might say, alternative kingdom, Paul wants us to see that we are not to continue in sin, not merely because it's the right thing to do, but more profoundly because our new citizenship in the kingdom entails a fundamentally new pattern of life. Like an immigrant coming into a new country, the process involves learning new allegiances, new values, new laws, new language even. New behaviors. We might summarize this in saying a new culture. And so in effect, Paul is saying this is who you are now. You can't keep sinning so that grace abounds because your citizenship, your identity is no longer in how you were. It's no longer in Adam. Now you are united to Christ. And you're therefore dead to that former former identity, to your former selves. And now... You are alive. This, brothers and sisters, is Paul's grand explanation as to how and why we can no longer live in sin. And it's an extremely good news, as we'll see here shortly. But it also leads to a further question. When Paul says that we cannot go on living in sin, does this mean that it's possible and something that should be avoided? We we should not go, go on living in sin? Or does he mean that it's actually an impossibility that we can't do? And therefore a truth that we should recognize. You cannot go on living in sin. This is a tricky question. Both of these answers, I think, have some validity to them. And each are true in their own way. But the key, I believe, comes from understanding what Paul is asking in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What he's asking is, how can we who died to sin still live as though sin still reigns over us? As though Christ was not our Lord, but sin was. 
The upshot of this then is that Paul recognizes that though it shouldn't be possible for Christians to live in ongoing habitual sin, it nevertheless still sadly is the case that this does happen. Though, and this is very important, it need not be so. It need not be so that we live in ongoing sin. A good example of this comes from the book of Exodus. If we think back again to that book, after the people are delivered out of Egypt and they are on their way, now they are wandering through the wilderness, you may remember what begins to happen. This is before even the Ten Commandments are given to them. They have just freshly evacuated and escaped through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. And now God is taking them to a new place. There's that transferal process of being taken from death and slavery to sin to life and righteousness. And they start to say, on their way, having just been rescued, we see this in chapter 16, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So though they had been emancipated, these Israelites longed to continue living under the oppression of Egyptian slavery. This also, brothers and sisters, may at times be true of us. Despite our having been set free and baptized, we may at times find ourselves still desiring the empty pleasures of sin. And so to borrow from the Proverbs, we have the propensity as King Solomon puts it, to be like dogs returning to our vomit again and again. So then again, what's the big question? The question is this, what hope do we have? What hope do we have in fighting our sin? How does Paul encourage us here? His first step is the seen in helping us to recognize our true relationship to sin. He has made it clear that by virtue of our baptism, With Christ in his death and resurrection, we have been set free from sin's rule over us. We may return and desire to return to sin, but the objective truth of the matter is that we have died to it. And the big point here is that this means that sin's reign, its rule over us, has been decisively broken. It's been crushed. Sin no longer rules over God's people. Nevertheless, Its presence remains. It still clings to us. It's not sin who has died, after all. Paul tells us it's we who have died to sin. This means we need to be vigilant then. This means we need to be on guard. We need to be watching for sin as it actively pursues us. I love the words of the famous Puritan theologian John Owen in his magisterial work from the Puritan era, the mortification of sin, which is fancy Puritan language for the death of sin, the killing of sin. He once issued this strong warning, take heed. This is what your lust is working toward. The hardening of the heart, searing of the conscience, blinding of the mind, stupefying of the affections, and deceiving of the whole soul. In other words, sin wants you. And it will have you if you let it. And so again, what hope do we have? It's good to recognize the seriousness of our foe, sure. But what's the plan of action? And 
Here again, Paul gives us surprising answers. This whole passage really is something special. It's quite unconventional. It doesn't follow sort of normal moral teaching. Just be better, do better. It reshapes how we think about morality. And so he says, essentially, our morality is built on and it's dependent upon our union with Christ, our living union with him. And so from verses 4 through 11, Paul makes an extended argument, which can basically be summed up like this. Because you are in Christ, and because Christ was crucified for you and then raised, you too now are really and truly dead to sin and alive to God. So Christian, and here's the big point, be what you are. Be what you are. Now, we can misinterpret this and take this as a blanket statement to be yourself, as our culture tells us to be. Be yourself. Live however you want to live. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise unless it's going to hurt someone. That's sort of the fundamental moral value of our society, it seems. As long as it's not hurting anybody physically or even emotionally, do whatever you want. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is helping us to see who we truly truly are. We are not in Adam. We are no longer that dead person. That's not who we are. Living into our, the ways of our deadness, living however we want according to our sinful nature is not who we truly are. Paul is saying, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. So be who you are. Be who you are. He has transferred us from sin's reign to his glorious light. So live like it, Paul is saying. Take advantage of it. And as he says in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so for the Christian, the motivation for holiness is not, hey, you know what? You're not quite there yet, so keep working on it until you get there. That's not the motivation. The motivation is this. Good news. You have been reborn, remade, and renewed in Christ. And now, with His power, you can actually begin to fight. And so He doesn't end things here. He keeps going. And so in the final verses of our passage this morning, He begins to sketch what this looks like for us a little bit. Verse 13 is where we begin to see Him give this information, this instruction He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's as if for Paul, Christians are those who, despite who they've already been through customs and immigration into his kingdom, they still have the propensity or the inclination at times to forget to which Lord they belong. Because we live in this world, but we are not of this world, Paul knows it can be a struggle for us to remember where our allegiances lie and who we truly are. In our fallen nature, who we once were in Adam, we were so used to serving and submitting to sin. And like people exhibiting signs of Stockholm Syndrome, we want to go back to our abuser. We, we long to go back to sin's abuse, to sin's rule. So what God is saying to us here through the Apostle is that we must remember that it is Him, it is Christ whom we serve, 
and not sin. We are to give ourselves, our souls, our minds, our affections, our bodies, all of who we are to Christ. We are to lay it before him and say, I am yours every day. I am yours. Make me an instrument of your love. And so again, knowing that we need hope and encouragement in this battle, the apostle concludes the passage then with a promise. Again, he ends it with a comfort, a blessing to us. He writes in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since or because you are not under law, but under grace. So here again, Paul reminds us that we are neither to be motivated by legalism, nor given to complacency and just giving up and throwing up our hands, but instead that we are to be propelled and pushed forward and onward to what God has for us in Christ because of what he has done for us in Christ. So when he says, for sin will have no dominion over you, he's grounding his entire argument up to this point in the gospel, in that good news, which is Christ for us. This is the indestructible power of God. And so Christian... Though sin may seem ever-present in your life, though its calls and whispers and temptations seem ever-constant and unending, and though its vice grip upon you at times will feel like it will never be loosened, perceive with the eye of faith this reality. Sin will never be your Lord. Not now, not ever. Because of what Christ has accomplished for you, what he has done to you, and what he is even doing in you now, today. And so in your despair, in those times when it seems as though growth in the Christian life is simply impossible, let us recall to mind both who we are in Christ and who he is. And let this Easter resurrection life be the greatest joy you ever know. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you having received your word.